Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALF. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Clocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Stephen Chu, who will discuss trapping atoms with lasers. Also, we'll find out what your genes are. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. Berkeley Crocs on Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Isn't this our third anniversary? Wow, it is our third anniversary. Happy anniversary. <laughs> Happy anniversary. You know what? Religions will fail before we do. <laughs> I always thought Berkeley Crocs was a religion. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're a religion without any cult followers. Just a supreme vision, right? What is that vision? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> At least one day we hope to have a vision. Hopefully ending in, in a mass suicide somewhere in Diana, I think. <laughs> but uh, speaking of visions, there's been a lot of discussion in the news recently about what constitutes the pure vision of science, and a lot of scientists are concerned that our government is distorting science. I think our government is distorting many things. Science is one of those. Right. So in a paper signed by uh, 60 scientists, including 20 Nobel laureates, the statement says that the uh, administration has distorted scientific fact, leading to uh, serious decisions that involve the environment, health, biomedical research, and uh, nuclear weapons. Has the administration responded to this? John Marburger, uh, President Bush's science advisor, has said that he was disappointed in this report and rejects these findings. So are they going to do anything about it. Not at this point, but this report raises the uh, point that the administration is probably not being uh, faithful to the scientific community, and we should probably be very concerned in terms of like the legislation and the regulations which are being designed, because they may be uh, influenced by people who are not scientists, but rather industry insiders. I think that comes as a surprise to nobody, really. <laughs> <laughs> it just has to be emphasized. Right. Because. Seeing as how scientists have neither uh, a lot of money nor political clout, I don't see that changing anytime soon. <laughs> but at least it's good to know that they wrote a letter. Just letter. That's one thing. Maybe the cult of Groks will take over and... Hopefully we can offer our vision to the other side of the United States. Start on this side of the United States and see what happens. <laughs> Alright, if you want to learn more about the letter... There are several articles, one in Wire News, and you can also see it at the website of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Well, are you going to do anything special for the anniversary show? I was still eating garlic. How long has it been since you've last had some garlic? A couple hours ago, oh. in the form of pills. It's good for cold. What if you had to wait about a thousand years between meals of garlic? I'm not sure if I could survive that long. You know, if you're a black hole, maybe you could. Black hole. Black holes actually go about a thousand or so years, maybe even a million years, without ever gulping another star. Wow. I wish I was a black hole. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out, though, actually, that black holes are always hungry, but they don't often get a chance to get a meal of stars. When a star gets near the black hole, it'll envelop, it'll start chewing up the star and breaking it apart. They just consume themselves, huh? Yeah, and so they're pretty rare events, and for a while, astronomers haven't really had much evidence of how this process takes place, until recently. So a group of astronomers at NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory pinpointed their strongest evidence in a remote galaxy called RxJ1242-11, and they saw the eruption of X-rays as an 
energetic as a supernova, which mm. uh, correlated very strongly with the signature you would expect to find from a sun being torn apart by a Ow. black hole. <laughs> Team estimates that even though just a few percent of the star's gas was vanished into the hole, the rest of it was flung back into space by the black hole. So does this give us an idea of the mechanism in which black holes evolve or survive? Yeah, according to Alex Filipinko of the University of California at Berkeley here, he says that it gives us new insight into how uh, black holes put on weight and how mature galaxies like the Milky Way have a little extra gas in their core. I wonder what Jenny Craig would say. <laughs> it's all about the Atkins diet nowadays. The Atkins? High-protein diet. <laughs> High-protein. Wasn't he like, obese when he died? That's what I've heard, and that was actually a confidential report, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oops. So this was being worked in, and can be found in the recent edition of Science Now. All right, so what disgusts you? Besides the distortion of science, of course. <laughs> I guess uh, not receiving the recognition after three years on the air here at Berkeley Garage. <laughs> is, is anyone listening? I really don't know, but at least we have fun talking to ourselves. But what about, say, feces or wounds or green goo? Do those disgust you? Maybe a little bit. Have you thought maybe this is a uh, innate response or perhaps a cultural trait? I thought it was just because green goo and shit was disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> I thought so too, but uh, a recent study proposes that perhaps this could be a, an innate trait that we have from evolution. What purpose would it serve then? so that people can avoid disease-causing materials. So it's sort of the same reason why we've evolved the avoidance of the rotten egg smell, sulfurous things. Bacteria produce this stuff, Perhaps. and that bacteria can make you sick. So uh, this study was actually carried out by Dr. Val Curtis at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and he's saying that the whole emotion of disgust can be described as an evolutionary development rather than a cultural development. Mm, I see. Aided our ancestors from eating rotten meat. Rotten meat or other <laughs> rotten, disgusting things on the ground. Okay. Of which there's a lot. If you actually look at other animals, they avoid each other's feces, so that's an indication. Them. Yet they'll eat their own. Surprisingly, some do. So, <laughs> if anyone wants to know more, they can go to uh, a website for real science, the BBC News. And hopefully, they won't be disgusted by it. Uh, of course. Okay, well, I hope you weren't too disgusted by that last story to uh, enjoy your vitamins. I love vitamins. Do you know that they could be also good for improving your memory? I did not know that. Turns out that they can. In fact, they might also be useful for preventing Alzheimer's disease. Wow, they can cure everything. Turns out a simple cocktail of vitamins and supplements can, in fact, significantly slow the development of Alzheimer's disease. You mean Centrum, right? <laughs> One a day. <laughs> a group led by uh, Carl Kottman of the University of California at Irvine and his colleagues have shown that in a model using dogs, that when you feed these dogs vitamins C and E, fruits and vegetables, vegetables, alpha-lipoic acid, and acetylcarnitine, dogs show fewer memory defects. And when you go in and you look for the buildup of these things called beta-amyloid plaques, which are common in Alzheimer's disease, you actually find that there are very few plaques that have built up after dogs. Really? Disease. So is it possibly that these vitamins are like high uh, antioxidants so that they prevent these plaques from building up? That's one of the ideas, is that they might reduce the production of free radicals, which are thought to be possibly involved in Alzheimer's disease as well. Mm -hmm. In fact, there are 40% fewer plaques, and if it turns out true, it could uh, drastically reduce uh, a lot of Alzheimer's disease just by taking some vitamins. And, yeah. Well, the cure is everywhere, huh? It's all around One us. One a day. It binds us. This was work that was presented at the annual AAAS meeting. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grok's only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Professor Stephen Chu from Stanford University will discuss how to use lasers to trap atoms and biomolecules. So stay tuned.
back to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, one of the fundamental problems of studying gas atoms is that they move too quickly, but many methods have now been developed to cool these atoms and trap them for later observation. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grocks to discuss these methods is Professor Stephen Chu from Stanford University. Professor Chu's work spans many realms of physics, from observing individual biomolecules to the laser trapping of atoms, techniques for which he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1997. He is currently at Berkeley visiting as one of the many prestigious Hitchcock lecturers, and he joins us today on Berkeley Grocks to discuss cooling atoms and holding on to biomolecules. Professor Chu, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. My pleasure. I think our audience is probably very fascinated in uh, this work on how you actually cool atoms using lasers. Can you explain maybe a little bit about how that is done? Well, the idea is that you want to reduce the average velocity of these atoms down to a very, very low speeds, and that's what we really mean by cooling. Temperature is a measure of the average emotional energy of these atoms. So one does this by actually shining light on the atoms. As the light scatters from the atoms, you can actually cool them down, and then the trick is that you have to arrange the light to preferentially scatter off a photons opposing the motion. And this is done simply by tuning the frequency of the light so that when the atom is moving towards this laser beam, it has a frequency shift called a Doppler shift that actually shifts it more into resonance. I see. And so what is it about the atom then that is able to uh, take on this energy or be slowed by the, this particular frequencies of light? Well, every atom absorbs at a certain frequency uh-huh. band, and you have to think of the light as actually having a little bits of momentum. Each mm-hmm. particle of light, called a photon, when it scatters off an atom, the atom will ricochet mm-hmm. by just a tiny amount. But if you then have tens of thousands of these little ricochet recoils, even a lot of BBs aimed at a bowling ball rolling down an alley could slow and stop it and turn it around. I see, I see. Do you need like, more than one laser then to keep uh, an atom in place? Well, you need more than one laser beam. Please. And so what we do is we split the laser into several pieces, and then we use a bunch of mirrors. So I often say that the magic of cooling atoms, it's done with mirrors. I see. <laughs> Um, I I recall that you described this as uh, optical molasses. Why is that? Well, molasses has a particular property. If you put something in molasses, your finger, for example, and you want your finger to go to the right, go to the left, what happens is no matter which way it wants to go, it feels this viscous goo dragging it down, trying to Mm. slow it up and stop it. And that is very much like atoms in these laser beams. No matter which way it wants to go, it feels a force slowing it down and trying to stop it. And once you've cooled these actual atoms using these laser beams, how do you actually contain it within a particular region of space? Well, there are several ways. One way is to use magnetic fields Mm -hmm. or alternating electric fields, namely even light. If you take a laser beam and you focus the laser beam very tightly, you create in a region of space a place where there's a very high electric fields. The electric fields are due to the light beams. And in a region of high electric field, as long as the electrons on the atom can keep in sync with the driving electric field, So if the electric field points up, for example, then the electrons relative to the nucleus of the atom then point in a direction where it wants to go into a region of high electric field. So it's exactly the same principle as a charged rod that you use to uh, pick up a little piece of paper. I see. So it's just being attracted to this uh, this field. Yeah, it's attracted to a region of high field. I see. And so simply a a, a simple focused laser beam is a region of high field. Intriguing. So how then do you uh, study these uh, molecules once they're uh, in place? Well, the remarkable thing of atoms once they're very cold and they're moving very slowly. And we're talking about speeds on the scale of one centimeter per second, about the speed of an insect walking. Wow. And so what we can do now is we can reduce the speed of these atoms from supersonic jet planes to that speed. Once they're moving that slowly, it's easy to use very feeble forces to push them around and mm. to hold them, like, for example, this focused laser beam. I see. 
What sort of results have come out of studying uh, atoms at this really slow temperature? What, what have we learned? Well, first, it was a bit of a surprise. The initial theory of how these atoms should behave in these light beams turned out to be incomplete, and the real explanation was much more complicated, but it allowed one to get atoms 10 times colder than what we thought initially. So we had a deeper understanding of how light interacts with atoms. But beyond that, I would say one has to look at this as a new tool, a new mm-hmm. technique. You've got atoms, they're very cold, you can do with them what you want. So the first things that came out were atomic clocks. In my lab, when I first joined Stanford, we said, okay, now that we finally got these cold atoms, can we make a better clock? Mm-hmm. And an atomic clock is something where you have uh, two energy levels on an atom, and what you want to do is you want to use those energy levels that are very well defined by nature to be a reference source. So imagine you have some microwave oscillator, and you try to keep that microwave oscillator tuned to the energy levels of the atom. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the microwave oscillator is this thing that we manufacture, and when we manufacture things, they're prone to drift, they're prone to all sorts of inaccuracies, but it's okay because we're allowed to adjust that microwave Mm -hmm. oscillator so it's always tuned in resonance with the atom. And so that's the basic idea of a clock. Mm -hmm. And we were able to make a better clock, and between two groups, both were connected with uh, cooling and trapping technologies. Within five years, it became the new standard of the world. Wow. Other applications include making what are called atom interferometers. That's a thing where you actually split the atom apart quantum mechanically. Mm-hmm. So don't think of it as splitting the atom apart as in fission, mm-hmm. nuclear fission, but, but splitting apart quantum mechanically means the atom could be in one region of space and at the same time in another region mm-hmm. of space. And then you bring them back together, and you have a very sensitive tool for making measurements, rotations, accelerations, and so on. I see, I see. Would this also be useful then for looking at the information transfer between the two different states as well? Yes, that's yet another application that Mm -hmm. hasn't really become practical. But Mm -hmm. but just splitting them and part bringing back together allows you to measure accelerations so much more accurately Mm. and so much more quickly that there's research going on to actually make this into a useful tool of exploration for oil and minerals. This is certainly very fascinating work, but I do want to move into uh, the work that you're doing on watching individual biomolecules move. I'm curious, uh, why did you approach this question? Well, in actual fact, in all honesty, we were working with atoms, Uh and quite by accident, we first said, okay, this is a lesson in static electricity. We can use focused laser beams to hold on to atoms. But as a preliminary trial Mm -hmm. and a much easier experiment, we can scale it up. Can we use a focused laser beam to hold on to little plastic particles? These are one micron diameter Mm -hmm. spheres of polystyrene thrown into water. And that was just going to be a warm-up experiment. Uh The water would act as the optical molasses. It's It's a viscous medium that wants to stop the beads. So that experiment worked very well. We then were emboldened to try it on atoms, Uh and several months later, the experiment worked on atoms. Now, in the meantime, the person who did the trapping of the bees, we were collaborating with a fellow by the name of Art Ashkin, continued to play around with these bees, Uh and he discovered quite by accident, you know, he... Well, the typical day, you you go into your lab, you've got beads in water, you push them around, you Uh see what they can do. You come back the next day, there are beads in water, you push them around, (laughs) you see what you can do. One day he comes in and he sees there's other things in the water. Now, to be sure, this was done in New Jersey (laughs) at Bell Labs. And what he found was eventually bacteria started growing in the water. And he was able to hold on to individual bacteria. Wow. And move them around, and then if it turns off the light, they would just swim away. Wow. He would go back and uh, retract them, push them around, and they would swim away again. And he found that he not only could hold on to bacteria, he could hold on to individual virus particles. And so when I got to Stanford, I said, well, this is really great. And by then, you can actually reach inside a single-celled organism 
and hold on to the nucleus of the organism. And then other people found you can reach inside the nucleus and hold on to an individual chromosome of a live organism, and you don't have to puncture the nucleus or the cell because it's light penetrating through this. So I say, okay, this this sounds pretty good. Why don't we try to hold on to individual biomolecules? What type of experiments one can do in biology, I wasn't really concerned at the moment. I said, I'm sure there must be something, but let's just see if we can do it. And so in the late 80s, we succeeded in holding on to individual biomolecules. I was sort of moonlighting. I got an MD-PhD student at Stanford to teach me a little biochemistry. Uh-huh. And I, you know, late at night, working with him in the lab, we, we finally succeeded in gluing on these spheres. There was a little mistake. I was naive in biochemistry. But after I succeeded, I turned to my graduates and said, okay, I think this can be done. Why don't you perfect it? And then it took a year and a half to perfect because of a technical detail that's not important. But but in the end, what happened was here was, again, a new method, a new technique. Uh-huh. You can hold on to individual molecule. And that actually exploded as well in terms of its applications, both uh-huh. in polymer physics and in also in, in biophysics. One of the early applications that I helped some of my colleagues at Stanford do and also other people was that you could start to do an experiment where, for example, you want to understand how muscles contract. Well, ultimately, you can describe the tissue and, and what, what the structures are, but ultimately, it get, boils down to the essential ingredients of muscle contraction can be described as the action of one big molecule called myosin. The mm-hmm. name's not important. Mm-hmm. And it attaches to a long rod called actin, and the unit of fuel that we use is uh, ATP. Mm-hmm. And when it burns one unit of ATP, this molecule can actually contract actually change its shape and pull on this filament called actin. Mm-hmm. And we were able to actually arrange an experiment where you feed this one ATP molecule, it contracts and pulls on this rod, and using an optical tweezer, you pull against the rod, wow. and you can actually measure the force of a single pull of a single molecule when it burns one unit of fuel. And you can measure how far it moves when it burns this fuel. And now this has become a, literally a cottage industry because <laughs> it turns out that first of all, you begin to explore all the what we call molecular motors mm-hmm. that induce motion on these other filaments. Uh, and these are motors you not only use in the transport of uh, in muscle contraction, but they're also used in the transport of material within a cell. So if you want to move material from one end of the cell to the other, it actually there's a little motor, a little bag. You put the stuff mm-hmm. in the bag, and it trucks along this this highway. Now, it turns out that much of what happens in biology is forces and motions and distortions of molecules as they interact with other molecules. Mm-hmm. And this technique, along with two other techniques uh, that were invented roughly the, you know, within five, ten-year period, has enabled biologists and biophysicists to begin to look at the interaction of molecules now based on what many of us believe are becoming to be the important way of looking at it, that that biomolecules actually move, they change their shapes, mm-hmm. and it's those movements and change of shapes and the structures that they take are really enables to describe how they work in, in terms of what we call a mechanism. It's a real physics-slash-chemistry description of what it's really doing. It's right. not it goes from step A to step B, and right. there's a mystery. Right. It now is seen as essentially physics. It seems like it's removing all the inherent discrepancies that might result in a bulk study of a lot of molecules. Well, when you mention bulk studies, that, you know, the typical experiment in a uh, chemistry or biology lab is you work with a, a test tube full mm-hmm. of, or nowadays it's an Eppendorf <laughs> volume full of these biomolecules, but that's billions upon billions of molecules. 
And it's very difficult sometimes to find out the true behavior when you have an average of everything. It's like you have an average of all the students at Berkeley. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of different types of students doing right. different types of things. And so that's all smeared into some one average. Right. And the average of all the students going about their business, taking different courses, doesn't really tell you what's really happening. We are running a little bit out of time here, but I'm just curious, so is there uh, any developments going on in, that are coming down the pipeline? That oh, understand? well, I mean, this is um, biophysics and biologists have really taken to these single molecule methods uh, developed not only in my group, but in groups around the world. One of the leaders here, there's been several groups here that have been really developing biophysical methods, mm -hmm. like Carlos Bustamante's group. So one is using these methods to attack ever more more complex problems, mm -hmm. and they seem to be working well. What's coming down the pipe is really a deeper understanding of how life really works. Well, Professor Chu, uh, I just want to thank you very much uh, for your time and joining us today on Berkeley Rocks today. My pleasure. You're just listening to Professor Stephen Chu from Stanford University discussing trapping biomolecules and atoms with lasers. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, you can find out where do the insects go during the winter. So stay tuned. Rocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, have you ever wondered where do insects go during the winter? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. In summer, insects are everywhere you look or swat. But did you ever wonder where they go during winter? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. There are millions of different species of insects, and most try to avoid the cold, but in very different ways. Some insects, like bumblebees, hornets, and houseflies, avoid the winter by, well, passing away, leaving eggs and larvae behind to start a new life cycle in spring. Other bugs take a different approach to surviving the winter. Some beetles dig deep into the earth to hide from snow, sometimes as much as six feet below the surface. Others, like butterflies, hide in logs or under rocks. They're not as protected as a six-foot-under beetle, so they internally produce a chemical called glycerol. This chemical is similar to antifreeze. 
What antifreeze does for a Volkswagen Beetle, glycerol does for a bug. Honeybees and ants just lower their metabolism and stay inside their hives, alive and active, just in slow motion. But the most unusual way for an insect to escape the cold is to head south. That's what the monarch butterfly does. In fact, the monarch has been known to fly all the way from northern New York to sunny Mexico to stay warm. So this summer, think about what insects went through last winter, and maybe they won't bug you so much. Thanks for being part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, making science make sense. Oh, Everyday Science Lady. At least I'm comforted to know that you'll be with us all winter long. And now here's the Spaniard Esteban with the answer to last week's question of the week. Thank you very much, my friend. <laughs> now is the answer to last week's question of the week. It's freaking amazing. My friend, you listen to me, my friend. What is a gene? My friend, I tell you right now. The genes, they're in your body. They're this DNA. The DNA which encodes your various proteins. Each gene codes one protein, which gives rise to many different things, my friend. And that is what a gene does. It's freaking amazing. Alright, I'm, I'm Forrest, and I have this week's question of the week. My mom told me that life is like a box of chocolates, but I don't know what's in the chocolate. If you do, or you think you do, email us at groks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you'll know what love is. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, email us at groks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon, and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie. <laughs>